Welcome to the Studio Sisters podcast. We're your hosts and sisters, Katie and Taylor. We travel the world, make beautiful things, and run our online businesses. We're creative entrepreneurs and Etsy experts, and we are on a mission to help you make meaningful income online and to create what you love. On the Studio Sisters podcast, we will dive into all things Etsy, running an online business, making money, creating while traveling, and growing your brand. We want you to leave this podcast with more confidence in yourself, your online small business, and the belief that your creative dream life is possible for you. So let's do this. Hey everyone, Taylor here. We are so excited for you to hear this week's podcast episode. This week we're talking to Larissa B. from Bold City Legal. She's the founder and managing attorney of a remote law firm. And guys, what she does is super cool. She is an attorney just for freelancers and small business owners, but she also lives, works, and travels remotely in her creative dream life. And she has her own photography side hustle on Etsy. You're going to love this episode. We chat about what it's like to be a woman uh, living and working remotely in her dream life. And then Larissa gives us absolute gold when it comes to tips about what you own as a creator and a small business owner, what you don't own, how to protect your small business, and then also how to handle those questions and things when it comes to copywriting and um, what you can actually do under creative use. Guys, there's so much good stuff in the episode, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. Hey, Larissa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much. We're super excited to have you. So, Larissa, you are a lawyer and you travel and you're also a photographer, right? Yes. Photography is, I guess, my side hustle. (laughs) Um, I think that you pretty much live like the dream life of working remotely and being able to do like everything that you love. Uh, So just tell us like how you got started as a lawyer. And then second question is like, what got you interested in photography? Sure. So lawyer was really kind of not that well researched. I went to college at Florida State University and I knew I wanted to do some type of grad school. At the time, it just seemed like that's the path. Like there was never really a question of just do undergrad. And I'm not sure why, other than maybe my parents' um, love and focus of education. So attorney was just something I had picked, although I said lawyer and now I say attorney all the time in high school. And so figured I'll take this LSAT, which is the standardized test for law school, and apply to some schools and see what happens. So I ended up getting into a number of schools, stayed at Florida State, which is where I did my undergrad, and had a great legal education. Um, You know, it's easy to gloss over after. It was certainly hard and demanding and challenging, but I really felt like I learned a ton in law school. And then I graduated in 2009, which was not the ideal time to graduate as far as economic circumstances. Uh, Had trouble getting a job, eventually got a job um, and hated it. So that was what I'd say the start in my non-traditional journey of everything up to that point was, oh, great, um, undergrad, law school, graduate. Now it's job and, you know, work your way up to partner. But that ended up being a point where I started to think, oh, no, what are some other options? Um, And so had tried not practicing and then eventually fell into practicing for myself, which provided this alternative of I got to do the business side of things, which honestly, to this day, is some of what I enjoy the most about having my own law firm. Um, And along the way, I started doing a little bit of travel. I didn't 
undergrad law school, I mean, I was maybe on a plane every other year. I barely traveled. Um, and then I went to Colorado on a trip, a girl's trip and just fell in love. And it sparked this interest in travel. And I always wanted to like capture the feeling of a moment. You know, if you're at on a great trip and you see amazing mountains or just like that feeling of like how joyous it is, um, led me to start working on photography. And early on, it was straight iPhone photos with heavy after the fact editing attempts. And um, looking back, some of it's cringeworthy. And that's probably how I'll look at some of my photos that I'm making now later on. Um, but I love it. And just, you know, I don't know that I'll ever feel like I fully captured a moment, but I love trying. And I, I mean, it's been years of starting at that iPhone photography to taking photos today. And I still love and am challenged by it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And I'm correct that you actually sell your photography on Etsy too, right? I do. Um, so I've definitely taken some of your tips. Um, I had sold the first few times at like local like pop-ups and then 2020 mm -hmm. happened and I put more emphasis on Etsy and um, yeah, I want to continue to grow that. It's definitely with the law practice lower on the priority list, but um, I mean, man, it is fun to sell something on there and to find someone found your art or in my case photography and they wanted to purchase it. Like, I don't know. I'm still blown away by that feeling. Yeah. It's always really cool. And like, your work speaks to someone else. Yes, exactly. And and so much so that they purchase it without, sometimes yeah. without having any relationship with you. Larissa, do you have any tips for other women who want to travel and run their own businesses remotely? Because I know you do this and we would just love to know if you have any tips for women who want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say my tips are always evolving as I evolve, but Two things come to mind that are really front and center. And one is do it because the way you phrase the question, and I think that's common, is there's a lot of people that see other people like you guys or myself, and they're like, I want to do that. Um, but there's this line between wanting to do it and actually doing it. And it's a bit like what I always tell people with solo travel. If you have that thought and it keeps coming back, you should 100% figure out a way to try it. The reality is, um, you know, when you actually commit to something, it's amazing how much you can do. And if not, this experience of working on your own while traveling, you can leverage that into some really impressive resume points and things to talk about during an interview. So I think it often feels more like a, I can never go back decision. And that's not true. Although I think once people do it and see that they can be successful, they're less likely to go back. But mm -hmm. doing it is like a big piece of my advice. And then there's so many resources now, too, to help you along the way. Um, and then charging more or at least considering charging more. I know myself early on, that was a big issue. I look back at the prices I charged when I first started my law firm and I absolutely cringe. Like, I don't even want to tell you um, the rates. And that's something that seems to be more consistent with women starting new businesses. And because I did it, I get the mentality of like you just want to that like first sale, whether it's a good or a service and the mentality is, well, if it's price low, someone will get it. And there's a few issues with that. One is like, you're making something awesome. Um, you know, you no matter what, whether you're offering a service or a good, by the time you're offering it to people, there's a lot of work on the back end, whether it's your training, your practice at the tr at it. Um, you know, there's a lot and you're bringing more value in most cases than you think. And then you don't want to get stuck, too. So, for example, early on, I had clients that I was doing really bargain basement work for. And then they refer other clients, which seems great, except those clients now expect the low rate. 
And I think that translates to goods as well. Like if someone buys stickers and they're like, they're 10 cents for a sheet of stickers. And then they refer people to buy them and it's, you know, 10x, 100x the price. Um, you're already not getting into the right market. So more than like, oh, and then the last thing, sorry, um, is as you go in, think about something that you can do on the road. So if being fully remote and travel is one of your reasons for starting your own business, make sure that going in, you're considering whether what you're doing can adapt to it. Absolutely. I think there are um, many ways that you could be successful making and selling handmade, like remotely or while traveling. That doesn't apply to every kind of product though, right? Like I think there are some people who are very successful with, let's say, small embroidered art that they could do on the road. But if you sell, um, you know, cake toppers, that's a small item. It's lightweight and easy to ship. But if you're trying to travel internationally, you like logistically can't do that. So thinking about, you know, what could I do? Do I need to shift into selling digital downloads Mm -hmm. if I want to truly be a hundred percent location independent? And so starting that early on, or if you're like, I just want to live the RV life in the United States for a few months, you could probably still you know, do smaller works of art or handmade products from your RV or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to chime in what, about what you said about the pricing, pricing things too low. And like that leads to word of mouth, but it not being a good thing because we um, occasionally do stickers that are custom work for other businesses. So we produce like logo stickers for other small businesses. And uh, we had... A few that we did early on, we weren't even advertising that we were doing this. It was just kind of like people approached us. And so we did it at a price that really was too low. And then, and they loved them and they were happy with the product. And we're like, great, this is a proof of concept. We have enough samples now. Let's put it on Etsy. And one of those people referred someone else and they came back and they're like, but the price is now literally double what I paid. What makes you think that like my friend is going to pay this? Like, I loved your work, but I just can't see myself, can't see them paying this. Can you give it to them cheaper as well? And we actually had to say no. Um, and that was really interesting moment, I think for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good for you for doing that. Cause I know, especially if someone pushes back, it can make it even harder Um, but at the end of the day too, it has to feel in order for you not to burn out, it has to feel like a good energy exchange to pick a West coast term, which is what am I, what I'm getting for what I'm putting out? Like, does that feel good to me? Um, in addition to, you know, like comparing what typical prices are and value and that type of thing, like the energy exchange increasingly, I think about even in those terms of you know, you're getting money, but you're also putting out literally energy in the work that you're producing. So props to you for um, declining that. I know that can be hard. Yeah, it definitely felt a little uncomfortable, right? To basically tell a past client that is giving us good word of mouth, like, I'm sorry, but you know, this is the price now cost of goods has gone up since the start of the pandemic. But also, like we gave you a price that was like, Honestly, too low. Honestly, too low. Yeah. And we've had to make a revision. And so if you wanted to support a small business, you would like reasonably understand that. But they walked away and you have to be okay with that. Like charge mm-hmm. what you're worth, charge what your services are worth and be okay with the fact that if someone walks away, that's okay. And there will be other people who will pay what you're worth. Right. Yes, absolutely. And then, um, the reality is, too, you don't have to do the same volume if you're charging the right price, you know. So at the lower discount price, you also have to do more projects to make the same amount of money. Um, I had someone recently that was referred by someone, I think it was probably six years ago I did work for. And again, those were the low prices. And he mentioned in our intro call that so-and-so said, you know, basically that like your rates are low. And so I made it into a little bit of a joke, but I was like, oh, well, you know, just to be transparent, I worked with him a long time ago. So we've gone up a little bit and I'm, you know, I'm happy to share with you what my current rates are, which were probably 5X what they used to be. 
and he's still a client. So sometimes just sometimes it does work out too, where people more readily accept the rate than you might think. So um, I want to change topics a little bit because we're super excited uh, that you reached out to us, Larissa, um, being an attorney, because I think that we get a lot of questions uh, about copyright as an artist and like if you're an Etsy seller or a small business owner, what you actually own uh, like sure. in your small business. So um, I, I personally am really excited because I think I'm about to learn a ton of stuff from you, Larissa. Uh, so let's start with copyright. What does that even mean? Okay, I'll give you sort of the legal definition, then we'll break it down a little bit. So a copyright is a form of intellectual property, and it is a protection for creative works that are fixed in what we call a tangible medium. So that's not quite the exact statute quote, but it's pretty close. Um, so basically what that means is we look at to have copyright protection, you need a creative work and it needs to be fixed somewhere. So creative work is exactly what you think it would be. Almost anything that you're using some creativity to, I'm going to say create, even though that's redundant, but to form. Um, so things like paintings, photography, um, books, blog posts, drawings, um, really anything that you're putting your creative spin on. And then fixed in a tangible medium, just for the most part means it's not in your head. So in the case of a painting, it's on, um, you know, canvas, or it could even be something that's created digitally. It doesn't have to be on like physical old school paper. That's a weird way to put it, but, um, it can be something that you can access electronically. So really, that's a lot of things that you get copyright protection in. So the next question is, what is the protection? What's the intellectual property? Um, yeah. There's they, they break it down in the law to like six rights that you get, but for creatives particularly that would be tuning into this, the main ones are the right to reproduce and make copies of the original work, the right to make derivative works, and then the big one, the right to distribute or sell copies of the work. Um, so I think a good thing to think about, we'll use painting as an example, is even if you, so say you create a painting and you sell that physical paint. So we'll start this way. You have a painting that you've created. You own a copyright in that painting. Um, that gives you, and exclusively you as the creator, the right to make copies of that, so do a print run of it, and to sell that work, unless you were to enter into a contract transferring those rights. So an important component with an original work or thing to think about is you could theoretically sell the original painting but you're still retaining the right to make copies. So the person that you sold it to, unless there is a contract to the contrary, they're buying that physical painting. They are not getting the right to then go and make copies of that and sell it on the internet. Um, and intuitively that might make sense if you think about it as you're at an art show and you sell a painting. Certainly you're not expecting that person to go out and then be able to resell that. That would be taking your creative rights. So um, it can be a dense area of law, but that's the high level is most of us own a lot more copyrights than we realize because we're making creative works frequently. Mm -hmm. I think our listeners are really going to <laughs> yeah. find this very helpful. I think that just understanding like, okay, if you made this um, and it's in some kind of form, it belongs to you and you're the person who owns the right to sell it. Am I summing that up pretty simply? Yes, that is absolutely right. And I think on the selling, like the right to make copies of it, which if you think about the word copy, right. Because that's a big one. That can be a source of confusion too mm -hmm. if someone um, you know, buy something and they're like, I love this. I'm going to start selling it on t-shirts. You cannot do that. Um, 
So on the artist side, that's really good because as you should, you've made this work. You should be the one that gets to choose. Sure, if you want to license it to someone and they pay you a fee to put it on a shirt, but you should get to choose what's done with that work and to profit from it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so also on the artist or the maker side, um, I paint and I create my own designs. And so obviously I own that creative work through the copyright, but do I still have to watermark the photos of the work that I put on the internet or do I need to trademark anything? Like legally, do I have to do anything? I, that's a great question. Um, so there's a legal and a practical component to this. So for the copyright, no. As soon as that work is created and put into, um, you know, a tangible or form of expression, you have those protections. Now, the practical side is, unfortunately, there is this, there are a lot of people doing sketchy things online, period. Um, you know, they're pulling, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and well, we can limit that to um, that impact artists, but, you know, they're <laughs> stealing images off of anywhere they can find them, a website, social media, Etsy, you know, and then trying to, and actually re- selling them. So while to get the copyright protection, way back in the day, you used to have to indicate copyright. You don't anymore. It's automatic. Um, but on the practical side, I do think it's useful to think about whether you can, you know, set up Photoshop to automatically do a watermark when you're posting things or um, using platforms that build in some protections. And you might be able to speak to Etsy. I know Smug Mug, which a lot of photographers use to show their work, you can do a setting so that someone can't right click and download the image. So they could still take a screenshot, but it's gonna be a lot harder for them to download a quality image that they could make copies of. I don't know, do you know, does mm -hmm. is Etsy have something similar? I don't think they have that. Yeah, um, I think that it's pretty easy, to, unfortunately, to download photos directly off of Etsy. Um, but you're right, even screenshotting too. The majority of Etsy shoppers, it's like 80% are on mobile, so they can literally just screenshot it anyway. Yeah. So that's one where on the practical side, thinking about including a watermark, and then you have to weigh that with, um, you know, cost benefit. Is that easy enough for you to do? Or is it so cumbersome that it's not going to be worth it? Um, but I think where you can watermarks, putting notices, even though you don't need it for the protection, it can be useful on the practical side from prohibiting bad actors. And then sometimes there are still a lot of people that don't realize they can't do things like that. Um, so sometimes some form of notice can just add that little extra, oh, wait, I can't just make a copy of this without permission. Um, and again, that's weighing, you know, time and business and what you think the risks are. Um, if it's happened previously, there might be a higher risk that's worth looking into more. Um, Copyrights, you can register and to actually bring a lawsuit for copyright infringement, your work has to be registered. And the simplest way to think of that is it's a it, that's done on the federal level. So federal government, it's national. If you register a copyright, it makes it easier to prove ownership and then enforce that copyright. Um, that is one, too, where, again, it's a lot less expensive than a trademark, but it still costs some money to get your federal copyright where you might want to weigh what are some of my top works and then register those or it just the likelihood of needing the registration might be low and might not be worth it. But that's an additional thing that you can do that isn't really going to honestly prevent people from misusing your copyright, but it makes it a heck of a lot easier to enforce that against someone. Um, and I know this is a long answer, but one thing I want to note before I forget is, so uh, you mentioned trademarks too, um, and trademark is a different type of intellectual property right. 
And what a trademark does is it protects your brand. So it protects um, typically a word or slogan that's come to be, or image, um, like logo, that's come to be associated with your business. So the quintessential example is the McDonald's Golden Arches, that M, the yellow M. Everyone knows that that's associated with a fast food chain and which fast food chain. So trademarks, that's a trademark of McDonald's and no one else can then use that. I can't go open up a burger store and put, you know, big yellow arches out front. Mm -hmm. So that's trademark protections a little different and you're thinking less about specific images and more of um, components of your brand as a whole, your name, slogan, things along those lines. I think that for most Etsy sellers, there's a relatively low risk or um, like the need to watermark or attempt to, you know, put this is copyrighted on everything you have on Etsy is relatively low risk. Um, most people are not out there going to, you know, be taking your images or repeating your product. But I do know this has happened to quite a few Etsy sellers. Um, you know, someone literally takes your images, creates their own duplicate Etsy listings and attempts to sell your product. Oh, and your sells images. on the same platform. And sells on mm -hmm. the same platform. Okay, I haven't seen um, that. Not, it's not often, it's not common, but it does happen. Um, or on Instagram, right? Someone's taking your, your art and posting it on their own account. So what would be your advice for someone if they find that their work is being copied or taken by another person or another small business? What would yeah, be like that's your a... step one, step two? Okay. Um, I am an attorney. So part of me, and this is my honest answer, is contact an attorney. It's great if you have someone that you've worked with in the past, because it a lot of times you can just do things a lot faster. And the reason for that is to make sure that you understand your rights, that you have a strategy for responding. And then the reality is we draft really wordy um, letters or takedown notices that on your behalf that a lot of times are taken more seriously because of the content, but also because it's an attorney. So people recognize, oh, they're not playing. They're not just like, can you please take this down? And if I don't, they're not going to do anything. It shows that you've leveled up. Um, so I do believe in contacting an attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, the next steps or, you know, these can kind of be done concurrently. Reach out and ask them to stop. Um, particularly Instagram. I've seen that work sometimes is just account holder to account holder. Hey, this is my photograph or this is my painting please remove it. Um, and then also using reporting mechanisms, pretty much every platform that I'm aware of these days has a mechanism for reporting intellectual property infringement. And even Google has some options for, you know, if something's on Google images, that's, you know, being used in an infringing manner that you can use. So reach out. Sometimes, like I said, sometimes people just don't know and they're absolutely willing to just do the right thing and then use reporting and then use an attorney too. And another reason for working with an attorney is making sure that you're solid in your rights too, that it's not like a non-infringing use of the work. Hey friends, we just wanted to take a minute out of our podcast to talk to you about our Elevate Your Etsy Shop Challenge. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously want to grow your handmade business and live your dream life, and we really want to help you get there. That's why we created our free five-day challenge called Elevate Your Etsy. We'll help you boost your Etsy shop's ranking, fix common mistakes that we see a lot of sellers making, improve your SEO, and do all of this without getting lost, stressed out, or wasting tons of your time. And you can do all this in just five days, which leaves you with extra time that you didn't already know that you had Hey, <laughs> for your family, making art, or even just soaking up some sunshine. So are you curious about what exactly is in this challenge? Let's talk about it. Each day for five days, we will be sending you an email with actionable steps and strategies that you can take to move the needle forward in your business. In just five days for about 30 minutes a day, we're going to 
One, identify your niche so that you can focus. I'll give you examples of niches. And if you email me back and tell me what you think your niche is, I will personally provide you with feedback on your niche. We'll also optimize your shop's page and sections. And I'll help you fix common Etsy mistakes that we see sellers making. We will also help you learn Etsy SEO basics. And finally, and I think this is probably the most important, you can set your intentions for yourself and really focus in on your dreams so you can start to plan for your shop's future. I know that in the past, all I wanted was a business bestie who already had the experience that I didn't have growing her business and making it wildly successful to sit beside me and be like, yes, girl, like this is the thing you need to do next. Here's your exact next step. So that's why we created this free challenge so that we could help other small business owners like ourselves make meaningful income and scale their Etsy shops with those actionable next steps. You'll be able to avoid the most common Etsy mistakes that Etsy sellers make and also know how to fix those. And you will also learn how to use focus keywords in each listing and get a ton of resources on Etsy SEO. And as we said earlier, we will help you establish your niche so that you can make more money. And most importantly, you're going to feel more confident in your plan to grow your business after doing this challenge. So what are you waiting for? If you're like, hey, yes, okay, this is me. This is exactly what I have been looking for. Go to shopstudiosisters.com slash elevate your Etsy shop, or you can find the link to sign up in our show notes. And we would absolutely love to have you sign up for the challenge because we want to help as many creatives and makers as possible. All right, back to the episode. What would be an example of non-infringing use of the work? Um, let's think, you know, maybe being like a, a newspaper publication would be a pretty good example of, um, you know, they're doing some sort of editorial and there's a photo of one of your works. Um, and then on social platforms, I think you also just have to check what the particular terms of the platform are. So there are a lot of exceptions, but I do see more infringing uses when it comes to works of art than non-infringing uses. I think, I feel like I could give an example where I unintentionally sort of, I guess sort of infringed on a trademark. Um, so I painted a, I'm a huge fan of Bob Ross. So I painted him and then I turned that into a sticker. So I, had him on Etsy and the Bob Ross company actually reached out to me and they were like, we love your art. We're very happy that you were a fan of Bob Ross, but you cannot call it the Bob Ross sticker. You can continue selling it. Your work is great, but you cannot call it that. Yeah. Because they own the name Bob Ross. So what a great simple... response on their part too. Oops. Sorry. Yeah. 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 And it was a very simple switch. Basically she just needed to change the title um, so it was not using their trademark name, um, but they actually were super great about like, you can keep selling the derivative work, but you can't use the trademark name. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I really like that approach too of, you know, there's a practical side of that of, we're going to tell you the law and we own the trademark in the name, but we also recognize like you're a fan and overall that helps us out is the reality um so I like the way they approached that yeah they could have definitely gone a different route and you know gone like a whole yeah. piece producing this like immediately or we're gonna threaten you with a lawsuit kind of vibe so um I think that that is like a really great example Katie yeah um okay so other than copyright and as you said working with an attorney um and then just directly contacting someone. Are there any other good ways that you can think of to prevent your work from being used without your permission? I mean, it really comes down to the things that we've already talked about that are sort of the tried and true practical strategies of whether it's watermarks or indicating something's copyrighted with the little C or stating it's copyrighted. Um, you know, the real crazy advice is stay offline, but 
that would then <laughs> undercut any sales. So, you know, that's not practical. That would help um, because it tends to be overall people that are online and nabbing um, works of art and reusing them. It's less common, although it does happen that someone goes to like an art show and then goes through the effort to make prints of that because it's just a lot easier online. And then I do, I'm a proponent of responding quickly and pretty aggressively. Um, and that doesn't mean like yell and scream and throw in curse words, but just being really firm and demanding that they take things down. And there are legal options if you have to um, for potentially bringing a lawsuit, which is a whole nother analysis. But, um, you know, don't feel shy or be intimidated by their responses. I think quick, act quickly and may firm is a better word than aggressively, quickly and firmly. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the flip side of the copyrights, let's talk about creative use and what that means as a maker or a small business owner. And let's just say that we make Disney inspired or Starbucks coffee inspired things. So what would be your advice about that? Like what should someone do or not do when it comes to working with licensed products? Is it like you absolutely should not, or is there a way to do it? Sure. So my first level advice is talk to an attorney. Um, and that's not just because I'm an attorney. There are tons of great attorneys out there that you can talk to. But the reason is, if I just had to give you a quick podcast answer, it would be don't do it. Um, there's so much risk on at least three different levels that immediately come to mind. There's um, potential copyright issues, potential trademark issues. And then there's if you're, um, you know, say it's a movie where it's not a cartoon, it's an actual person. There's some right of publicity issues, mm -hmm. which is essentially we all have the right to profit from our own image and people can't just generally take your image and profit from it. Now, the law is so much more gray than people think, but your safest bet is really, that's a murky area. And if, if I were to do it, I would get an attorney consult for each piece. Now we get into the business side of things, which is, is that really worth it financially? Maybe. Um, but it's an area where generally there are a lot of pitfalls. Some of it depends on the business's approach to things, you know, how strictly they're enforcing. But you're also up against really big players. Like I've worked on some lawsuits against Warner Brothers um, dealing with vintage images. So there's a little mm. more gray area in the copyright. But these companies are big players that make a lot of money from licensing their images for use. So they have incentive to be, you know, strict in enforcing. And they also have the money to hire like teams of lawyers. Um, so I know I'm coming from the, the risk aversion side of things. I am an attorney, um, but it, that's a really risky area. Yeah, I think that we are in 100% agreement with you, though, because like I can tell you from the Etsy side of things, like, first of all, you're right, these are huge companies. The honest truth is Etsy is going to side with them, not you. <laughs> like Etsy is not going to stand up for you against yeah. a giant corporation like Starbucks or Disney or Warner Brothers. And then the other thing too, like, okay, from the like health standpoint of your business, your goal should be to have a business that is um, sustainable, that is like satisfying to you, that has longevity, that you think creates a sense of freedom in your life, right? For the next five mm -hmm. years or 10 years. So why would you take that business? And instead of setting it up for success, set yourself up for like a really bad situation by using licensed images or licensed, you know, quotes or characters in any way. That's just like an opportunity to fail that like you don't need to take. Like, it's just crazy to me that that's the direction that people go. They say, oh, I want to start an Etsy shop and I want to sell Starbucks cups or I want to sell Disney character stickers. And I'm like, no, you can create your own works of art 
or your own products and Mm -hmm. they actually belong to you and you're no longer risking the opportunity of Etsy shutting you down. A lot of people don't realize when they sell these licensed characters, what's typically going to happen is Etsy's just going to shut them down completely. And so you could be selling and doing great and you're thinking everything is okay by selling your Disney stickers. And then the next day Etsy bans your shop for good and you have no source of income anymore. Yeah, that's great insight. Um, from the the business side of things. And you guys know more than I do how Etsy operates. And from the legal, it totally makes sense. And I would say, you know, big companies too also are good at being able to scan for images and quickly find uses online. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's great advice. And for example, that lawsuit that I referred to earlier, that's lawsuits that go on for, I'm not even kidding, like two to 10 years plus. And I mean, what's worth that headache, even if, you know, it's enough of a transformative use that somehow you prevail, which is typically unlikely. Um, I recently saw an article. There's a lawsuit over an Andy Warhol um, Hmm. painting that he did of, I believe it was Prince. And that's still like up on appeal. And these things drag on for a really long time. And that one ties into more right of publicity. So the right to profit from your image and that right in certain locations can um, continue after death, which I know is probably more legal weeds than you need, but just an example of how long standing these issues can go on and how much better you are just being safe. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that if your goal is to like have a business that makes you happy and makes you money and is not like a, just a flashbang and it's gone, then like you would stay away from licensed products with like a hundred foot pole. Like you wouldn't get anywhere near that if your goal is a healthy, successful business. So, and Etsy does shut people down and you're right. These companies will scan Etsy for images. They'll scan for their trademark names in your titles or keywords. I see it happen a lot. So I'm really like so happy that you're able to share this information from an attorney standpoint of like, why you wouldn't do this. My business side is, well, I wouldn't want your business to get shut down, but you're also saying, well, they're also like legally, it's just not worth it. It, you don't have the time to invest in defending, you know, your work. That's likely an infringement Mm -hmm. um, against a large company. Yeah, absolutely. And I know some people like doing like just for their own pleasure, like fan art, do that at home and don't make that part of your business. Yeah. You know, if you love drawing Disney characters, do it and enjoy like the work in your own home, but don't use that as yeah. the foundation of your business. You don't have to sell it. Exactly. Sometimes okay. art can be just art. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We have a few fun questions for you for the okay. wrap up of this episode. So number one is if you had an extra $1,000 in your creative budget, how would you spend it? Like this can be for your business, your photography, whatever you want to use it for. Okay. Um, I like this question a lot. It's actually helping me think ahead for business planning. We'll go with (laughs) photography um, since that's, you know, my side creative business. I think that I would take half of that $500 and use to hire a contractor to just help me with things I haven't gotten to, but mean to do, whether it's Um, you know, adjusting my listings to include better images and some mock-ups and additional sizing, which is such a simple thing, but it just gets pushed behind my full-time job. Um, So I think if my maths-ish are right, if we take $500, say I pay someone $20 an hour as a contractor, that's 25 hours of work. That's amazing. That's like you know, half plus a week of work where I can work on my law firm and still have these um, tasks taken care of that I get to do high level management. So I think solid half to a contractor, um, $100 for just to run some new test prints. I like to print everything before I put it up so that I can see, you know, not some images look great on screen and then you notice just issues with it when you print it. Mm-hmm. And that's really fun for me. I love getting new physical photo prints to look at. Um, And then I think I would 
use the remaining 400 to run some ads focused on winner sales. I, I imagine it's similar across Etsy businesses, unless they're, um, you know, for Valentine's Day focused or something like that. But winner, like, I think if I'm remembering right, maybe end of October to early December was high time last year. And that I yes. believe was my first full year on Etsy. So I think I would want to play a little bit with ads. That's cool too. Knowing like mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people are scared to run ads or they've had a bad experience before. And you're saying, if I just had this extra money in my budget, I would just play with it and experiment with it during the best time on Etsy, which is the last quarter. Awesome. Yeah. And think about how much like you learn. I, my view is like, I would learn so much from that. Just the data um, from doing that of like, one is this is running ads effective and then what's selling and things like that. Yeah. So Larissa, what's one thing that you're personally learning right now? What's something you're working on for yourself? Okay. This is a lifelong focus. Um, (laughs) and that is focusing more. So I have a ton of interest, both professionally and then creatively, Um, so really thinking about how to narrow what I'm doing on all fronts. Um, so on the law firm, you know, I years ago started as truly a general practice of like, I'll do almost anything. And I've narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And I want to keep doing that. And that doesn't mean that I can't occasionally work on other projects, but right now I'm focused on, um, working with what I call modern businesses, which can be creatives or just anyone that takes, you know, a different approach to business. Um, And then on the photography front too, really nailing down, like, what am I going to sell? What images am I going to sell? And in what form and what locations? So I'm working on focusing, but right now I'm doing that by doing a lot of kind of unfocusing of thinking and like, what are all the possibilities? And then literally like, writing them down and redlining through things. I like that. Unfocusing to focus. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> okay. So if someone is listening to our podcast and is thinking that I need a small business lawyer, or I really want to learn more from you, Larissa. So where can they find you? They can find me at boldcitylegal.com and then Instagram at boldcitylegal. Um, I've been slow on there, but we will be ramping back up. And then for the behind the scenes, fun stuff of where I'm traveling and what I'm doing, Eclectic Adventures on Instagram. And that's my probably the place I honestly, as Larissa the person, show up the most on the internet. I have been on your personal Instagram and I'm like, oh, all the Colorado pictures and mountain pictures of you traveling just makes me like miss like the western part of the United States it's a whole vibe that we don't get here in Florida and it's just lovely yeah thank you I appreciate that and you'll have to if you got if you make it back out um here hit me up I'm always down for a hike or coffee or those types of things I love it. Awesome. Well, um, Larissa, one follow-up question to that really quick. So everyone can find you at Bold City Legal, but um, what is the like service that you would suggest that small businesses start with when they're approaching an attorney for the very first time? Like what should they look for? What, what is the thing that they should try to do if they're not really sure what exactly that they need? Yeah, I recommend for that what in my business I call a strategy session. Sometimes it's framed as a consult. So that is 45 minutes to an hour that's just dedicated to an initial call to talk about your business. And the way I do mine is for the most part, I turn it over to the business to tell me about their business, ask any nagging questions that they have, and then I'll provide some insight based on what they told me because I know there's a mix of people. Some people have very specific questions and some people are like, here's my business. And I know that I should consider legal, but I don't know what to do. And I can take that and run with it too. But it's an initial way to figure out what you need to do, evaluate risk. And then I'm pretty transparent of sometimes I'll recommend people 
do things themselves that are pretty easy and they feel competent. And then, or I might recommend, oh, I can adjust this contract for you and give next steps. And I kind of, I draw this analogy between it being like you're having a primary care physician. You know, you might not see them all the time, but once you have that relationship established too, you can reach out because that person already knows you and in that case your medical history but me your business and i have clients that literally sometimes i'll do they'll send me an email i'll answer it in 20 minutes and they have a 20 minute bill for the month which is not too bad which i couldn't do with a business that i didn't know so i think a strategy session or consult call wherever you're at whatever attorney you can get in touch with i really think that is absolutely worth it for pretty much every business and the, let the attorney help you figure out what's next from there. I love that. That's super helpful. I think there's many people who are like, uh, I don't, I know that I might need to talk to one, but I'm like so terrified to do it because I have never talked to an attorney in my life and I have no, I don't know like what I need to do. So I like the idea of like a, just a strategy session to introduce yourself and your business. And, you know, maybe you don't need legal services like right this second, but it's helpful, like you said, to have someone who already knows your business as opposed to starting once you already have a problem. Yes, I, from the legal side, 100% agree with that and typically cheaper too. Right, right. Awesome. Well, Larissa, this has been like so valuable, probably one of my favorite episodes that we have done with a guest on the podcast up to this point. I think our listeners are going to love all of this information. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you guys for having me and for putting my brain to work. It was really fun to talk about these things. Thank you so much for listening to the Studio Sisters podcast. If you missed the link earlier to our Elevate Your Etsy Shop Challenge, here it is. Just go to shopstudiosisters.com slash elevate your Etsy shop. Or you can also find a link to sign up in our show notes. Just a reminder, our free five-day challenge called Elevate Your Etsy will help you boost your Etsy shop's ranking, fix common Etsy mistakes, improve your SEO, and we're going to help you do all of this without you feeling lost, stressed out, or like you're wasting tons of time. I highly recommend the challenge. We've had a lot of Etsy sellers go through it and learn things that they never knew before. And the best part is it is free. So all you need to do is head on over to our website, shopstudiosisters.com slash elevate your Etsy shop, or click the link in our show notes. Thanks. And we'll talk soon.